I love that song in that it poses a question. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? I'm asking that the Lord would bestow his grace upon us and that we would be open to receive it from him this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This morning, if you would uh, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, uh, this morning we're going to uh, look at verses 12 through 20. Before we do that, I want to open with just a, a thought for us to think about, as it'll prepare, prepare our hearts before we go in the Word. Vaudi Bacham says this, that the church today is in love with the Jesus that she doesn't know very well. And today, what I want to do is I want to present to you from the scriptures, Jesus unveiled. Jesus as the representative son of man in one sense, but then Jesus in his soon return is the fire from heaven, the authorized judge of the hearts of men. That Jesus, when he comes, is coming again as a warrior, as the king, as the winner, as the one who deserves all of our praise. And so let us pray. Lord, gracious and mighty, I do ask this morning that you would give us grace to illuminate the passage to our understanding, that you would give us grace in our hearts, uh, that we would be inflamed, that you would pierce those hearts of ours to repentance and faith and love. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would engage our will to faithful obedience. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as you are able, let us stand for the reading of the infallible, inerrant Word of God from Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's Word. You may be seated. To get us some context, we need to understand this, that there was an alarm that was given in heaven. The voice of a trumpet blast. A triumphant announcement was coming. The voice was the voice of God's Christ. The voice commanded our brother, our fellow partaker in tribulation and kingdom and perseverance that are in Jesus. The voice commanded the prophetic word be delivered through the Apostle John to write the things that are unveiled to him. It was commanded to him to reveal those things that he saw to the churches there in Asia Minor, to give an account of all that he saw. He turned to see the voice, and the vision of the Son of Man was unveiled before him. He sees in the vision an emblematic representation of the church. The seven golden lampstands were just an emblem of the churches. He sees this. The church is that which displays the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is then unveiled to John. Further, the man in the middle, the one who walks in the midst of the churches in a glorious form. The apostle, our brother, 
and our fellow partaker in tribulation and in kingdom and in perseverance, he is overwhelmed by the vision as it is unveiled to him. The one who is unveiled to our brother and our partner gives him comfort and encourages him. He lifts him up. He unveils his divine nature. He uh, declares his former sufferings. He declares his resurrection and life. He unveils his office and his authority. He reveals his will. And finally, he unveils meaning to all of the bondservant of Christ, what he is seeing. So our question, one question that we have for us this morning is, what was the purpose? This is, this is leading us into something. I hope that you will track well with me on this. I'm leading into something big, I believe. What was the purpose of God's creation of man? More appropriately, what then is the purpose of human existence in our earthly temporal life? That's a big question, isn't it? What is the purpose of human existence in our earthly temporal life? We can go all the way back to the beginning. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, God, who is the creator and king, created humankind to reflect his image on earth. And further, the king assigned those that he created in his image to be vice regents. You know what a vice regent is? Okay, a vice regent is that there's a king who is the king of all kings. Let us just say, here we are on earth. Right now, there is one king, and that king is King Jesus. And King Jesus is sitting on his throne in heaven. And he has dominion over everything. And those he created in his image to reflect that image, he has assigned them dominion over the places where he has them. In him, under him, with him, they are vice regents. They are to rule and to reign underneath the king. And they are to reign and rule with the authority that the king has given them. It is to rule over all the things that God has given them, given them as a representative of who he is. To represent the king on earth and to have dominion over the things that he gave us. Well, here we go. We have a problem. Our first parents abdicated that rule. They distorted the image of the king through rebellion to his authority. The serpent, the devil, whispered in the ear of God's representatives. This is what he said, something like this. The king has forbidden you from taking of the tree of knowledge. You see, he wants to limit you. If you eat of it, If you defy his authority, you can have real dominion over everything. You can have everything and you will not have to answer to anyone. Not only did our first parents abdicate, which means they renounced their proper authority. They renounced their dominion. They disowned it. They rejected the dominion as vice regents. And they agreed with the devil in a sense to stage a coup. Going to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was staging a coup against the king. You can have dominion over all these things. I've given you dominion. I I, I want you to be my vice regent. This, though, is mine, the Lord would say. This is mine. But everything else belongs to you. And you should rule, and you should reign over it. You should subdue it. It's yours. It belongs to you. And the enemy says, no. Autonomy is better. Rid yourself of his rule and you can really have rule. Uh, Isn't that what it's like when you're raising uh, teenagers? 
right? You raise them up and you, you have dominion and you kind of give them some authority to their own lives and then pretty soon, every once in a while, it rises up in them and they go, no, I will not have mom and dad rule over me. I will do it my own way. Right? And we put those limits on them because we love them and we want to guide them and we want to protect them. And some things belong to us. But they say, no, I will not have that. I will not have you rule over me. So here we are. Our, our first parents, they, they, with the devil's influence, decide to stage a coup against God, declaring this, we will not have him rule over us. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So though our first parents, our first parents were denied kingdom authority because of their rebellion, God promised a coming representative. Even before this banishment, he promised a coming representative, one who would represent man perfectly. God promised mercy and grace in him. Though there would be sanctions for them, as we see here, there was a sanction for them. But he promised in chapter 3, looking at verses 13 through 17 of Genesis, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat all the days of your life. Turn with me now to Daniel chapter 7. As we look at Daniel chapter 7, here's the promised one whom God was giving dominion. This is the vision of God giving dominion to the Lord Jesus. Verse 13 of Daniel chapter 7. I kept looking in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The Son of Man in Daniel 7 was a corporate representative for the saints. He's a corporate representative for the saints in both respect to suffering and to ruling. What the prophet Daniel foretold, Paul declares in Athens, has come to pass. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. This is the declaration to you today that God has sent his representative king and that this son of man that Daniel foretold has come. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. And there's a day that is fixed when the Son of Man will come again when the Son of Man will come on a day and in an hour when you least expect Him. While John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, the one who was and the one who is and is to come, he spoke to him. And John is commanded to unveil to the church 
the nature and the authority of the appointed one, of the one by virtue of his life, death, and resurrection from the dead, is not just vice-regent and representative, but the one upon whom if he is believed and he is received, he, it is he, and through him, that he makes humankind once again vice-regents who will rule and reign with him. As we remember from John chapter 1 and verse 5, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and releases us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the declaration that in Him we are to be vice-regents here on the earth. We are to rule and reign with Him because He came once as our representative. Jesus came once as our representative. Think about this. As He represented us on the cross, He came as a representative of humankind in suffering. He was our representative. He was our Savior. But this revelation that is now coming is the revealing of Jesus Christ as not just Savior, but He's Lord. He is King. He is the Son of Man who has dominion. And the one who has dominion has right to have to give those whom He brings into His kingdom kingdom authority, right? We as vice-regents. To our text, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. So the alarm of heaven has sounded in the ear of our brother, our partner in tribulation, our partner in kingdom, our partner in the perseverance that is in Christ. The first vision unveiled to John is the seven golden lampstands. These are the emblems of light, the instrument that holds the light. The light that that lifts light to the world. The instrument that lifts up light to the world. And in verse 20, it will be revealed that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So I want to ask you, and I've had some conversation with some people in the past few weeks about the purpose in trying to understand the book of Revelation. If, If your primary interest is to discover the timing of the consummation of history, to discover whether it is a beginning rapture, if it's a middle rapture, if it's an end of tribulation rapture, if your interest is is in discovering just who the man of lawlessness is, who Antichrist is, I think there, if that is your primary interest in understanding this book, I believe you might miss the whole point. I'm afraid you might miss the whole point of the book. Because the point is, until the Lord returns, the church and individual Christians in the church are to remain faithful to the master, to be doing the master's bidding, the king's bidding, to care for the kingdom, to rule and to reign as vice regents to the superior king and the kingdom that is to come. If we miss that, by focusing on these other things, we we will miss the whole point, I think. That's why the the book of Revelation is front-loaded with all of these warnings to the church about the king coming. The message is not for the world, is it? This message is not for the world. This message is for the church. He comes to tell the church what the church ought to be doing as vice-regents until he returns. And when I come, it's going to come as a surprise, so be ready. That is the point, and I don't want us to miss that. And the church, as vice regents of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, is to be the instrument that holds up the light, that elevates the light of the gospel, that illuminates the darkness in the world, that illuminates darkness in the hearts of humanity. The purpose of the church is is to declare, just like John does in his gospel, to declare this, In John chapter 1, he declares this, In him was life, 
and the life was the light of men. Is that not the purpose of the church? What would be the purpose of a golden lampstand except to say this? In him is life, and his life is the light of men. That is what we are called to as church, as a Christian, to uphold, to elevate, to make known. That is our our duty. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Some versions will say, did not overcome it, and that's really more apropos, I think. That this light is not overcome by darkness. The light of the gospel overcomes darkness. And that is just a simple scientific fact, is it not? If you go into a dark room, completely black, strike a match. It virtually lights up the whole place. You can actually see. All you need to do is, is have a light and you have to uphold it. You have to lift it high and illuminate the whole place. That, that is, that is our duty. That is who the church is. These lampstands. Looking, uh, further in John's gospel, look at verse seven as it describes the John the Baptist is that which describes who we are to be as a church. To testify about the light so that all might believe through him. To declare, we are not that light, but we came to testify about that light. There was true light, which was coming into the world, and that enlightens every man. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as did receive him, to them he gave right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. See, the first unveiling to our brother and partner in tribulation and kingdom and perseverance in Jesus is the unveiling here to the church and what the church church's purpose is to be. To be a light. To lift up that light. To rule and reign as vice regents of the king. This is the role of the church. Verse 13, And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet. The man in the middle of the golden lampstands, the one who is and who was and is to come, is about to be unveiled. The one whom God has appointed, the Son of Man foretold in Daniel 7, the head of the church, the light upon the lampstand, the one who, upon a day fixed by the Father, whom God has appointed the judge of the world by his vicarious death, having raised him from the dead and ascended to heaven, the heavenly representative of mankind has been declared king. And he is the king who is about to be revealed. When the church or the Christian desires to find out who she is, she needs to look no further than the Son of Man unveiled. Who are we? What is my purpose? I need to look to Jesus. I know it's easy, right? That's the Sunday school answer. And the Sunday school answer is right. That's the answer to the question, whatever the question is. It is all about Jesus. That's the answer. Who am I? Look to Jesus. Who am I to strive to be? Look to Jesus. How am I supposed to live? Look to Jesus. How am I supposed to die? Look to Jesus. Who am I? We need to look no further than the Son of Man unveiled to us. Who Christ is, is who we are becoming. And who He is revealed to us is to be the measure that Christ is looking for when He returns. Think about this. Who He is, is what He uses as His standard. We will see this in the coming weeks when we go through each one of the churches. He opens each letter to each individual church with some description of who he is. And when he says, this I have against you, it's that you were not that. This is who I am. This is who you are to be. 
And this is what I have against you, that you weren't reflecting my image, that you weren't taking dominion as vice regents, as I've called you to do, and as you have the power to do in him. I want us to notice this in uh, verse 13, that he was clothed in a robe reaching to the feet. As he's clothed in this robe, what does it signify? It signifies royal attire. It signifies that God has provided in him. It signifies that God is the healer. The Son of Man robed unveils to the seer that in him is salvation. In him is the righteousness of God. He is the king robed in royal attire. You know, you've seen those pictures of Jesus on the cross, right? With a loincloth and no t-shirt, no shirt on, right? You think that that is the most unveiled. Well, unveiled there is the unveiled suffering saint. The one who died for us. The one who came as our representative. But what we, what we see here in this passage is that when Jesus is unveiled, he is robed in righteousness. He comes as royalty in a robe. What is unveiled here is Jesus Christ as king. If you would turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61, looking at verses 10 and 11. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped, wrapped me with a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself out with a garland, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and a garden causes the things sown into it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. This is the king declared. This is the one who's clothed in God. He's clothed in the garments of salvation. He's clothed in the garments of a king. This shows that God's favor was upon him for us. He kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and he gave us his righteous robe. This is a declaration of Savior and King. He's both our Savior and he's the King. He's the one who rules. It's pretty exciting to me when I think about that. And then it tells us in Ephesians 5 kind of what to do. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. He gave us his righteous robe. He was girded across his chest with a golden sash, further declaring his royalty, his his kingliness. The Son of Man revealed here, the unveiling of Jesus Christ is that He is King. He is Lord. Verse 14, His head and His hair were white like wool, like snow. What is unveiled before John is just this ancient of days. The ancient of days in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, and its wheels were a burning fire. Look at verse 14 and the other half. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. When we also think about Daniel chapter 10, looking at verses 5 and 6. I lifted my eyes and I looked. There was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body was also like beryl 
His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet were like gleaming of polished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. See, John purposely uses the language of the prophets because this is a prophetic word for us today. And we know this, that in him is the visible expression of holy God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, when we look at white, white is often a depiction of purity. Remember those the saying that we, we have? Maybe I'm just old and I know this saying. Pure as the driven snow. Though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. When we look to the one whose, whose hair is white and he, he is glowing with whiteness, with purity as he comes, we know this, that our purity is in him. That though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow in him. Unveiled here is the one who purifies the filthiness of the believer's sin through the shedding of his own blood. See, when we think about this, only the pure could purify. Only the one who was absolutely pure could purify us. You can't clean filthiness with more filth, can you? You don't add dirt to your uh, laundry machine. We We have to have purity. And this is the pure one. This is the pure one declared here in this passage. It is declared that he is pure. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. He is the purity and the holiness of God. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. Think about this for a second. Fire from his eyes, and he has he is one who has been through the fire. Eyes of fire and one who's been through the fire. This is this description here. He's the judge of the hearts of men and women. His flaming eyes burn through the pretense of the human heart. As we look at this, his eyes were like a flame of fire. He sees through the human heart and it burns away any thought that we in ourselves are pure. His flaming eyes burn through the pretense of the human heart and expose our motivations and the thoughts that we have. All our fleshy, futile efforts get ignited upon the fiery glaze of Jesus Christ. As we remember from our study uh, several weeks ago in Matthew chapter 24, uh, let us go ahead and turn there, Matthew 24. I'm going to read 42 through 46 as a reminder of the one who comes with the flame of fire. Therefore, be on alert, for you don't know which day your Lord is coming, but be sure of this that if the head of the house had known at what time the night the thief was coming, he would have been on alert and would not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason you must also be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household? See, there's the idea of vice-regent again. That is the role of the Christian and the church. Think about this. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave, servant, whom his master put in charge of his household? That's the question. The answer in verse 46 is, blessed is that servant, that slave, whom his master finds doing so when he comes. That is, giving 
food at the proper time. That is, taking care of their kingdom responsibilities when he returns. That is what he is looking for. The big question is, will he find faith? I know I've said that for five weeks in a row now, but I'm going to keep saying it probably for another uh, seven weeks or so at least. Right? Will he find faith? That's his big question. That's a question that I want to answer well, right? In my prayer times over the past few weeks, I've been asking that question. If the Lord returned right now, would he find me faithful? Would he find me what I'm doing right in this moment? Would, would he, if he came right here by surprise and in shock, would I, would I be in horror that he found me faithless? Or would I be rejoicing that, ah, he caught me doing his bidding. He caught me caring for the things that he gave to me, the dominion he gave me as a vice regent, one who rules and reigns with him and under him. Is that how he would catch me? Turn with me to Daniel uh, chapter 3. I want to look at Daniel chapter 3. I want to look at verses uh, 19 through 25. And you might, you might know this story quite well, but it's really apropos to what we are looking at today. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their clothes, and they were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste, and he said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast in, bound into the midst of this fire? Then they replied to the king, Oh, certainly, king. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So when we look at this text and we see this Jesus, this coming one, this unveiling of who Jesus is, we see that he not only has the eyes like a flame of fire judging the hearts of men and women, but we see that he is the one who was in the midst of the fire and took the heat. He was the one, as representative, took the heat. He bore the heat. I can't help but think of the VeggieTales cartoon when I, when I read that passage. I always think of it because, you know, the, the little uh, veggie, whatever he's saying, I can't remember which one it was, but he's like, hey, didn't four guys go in there? Yeah. Or didn't three guys go in there? Yeah. Four of them came out, and one of them's real shiny, Right? This one came out. He, he bore the heat, right? He bore the heat for us as, his, as a representative. But what's being unveiled is that he is also the judge who is to come. In the first advent of Jesus Christ, that is, when he first came, he came as humankind's representative, and he took upon himself the fire of the wrath of God against sin. That's good news, isn't it? It's really good news that he took the heat. He took the heat. He came as our representative. But what's being unveiled here in this text is in the second advent, he is coming to judge the world in righteousness with fire. I can't help but think of, of a baseball scenario. I was thinking of my brother-in-law, uh, Richard. He would uh, really have, have uh, gotten uh, this illustration. Uh, I thought of him as I was preparing this. It's the bottom of the ninth. Church, it's the bottom of the ninth. And in the bottom of the ninth, they bring in the closer. And when the closer comes in, you don't have to guess what's coming. He's going to bring the heat. He's bringing the heater. It's coming hard. It's coming fast. 
He's bringing the heat, right? And when I think of this passage and I think of what's being unveiled here and to the church and in our age and what we're thinking about, right? It's the bottom of the ninth. It's the bottom of the ninth. And God's bringing in the closer to close up human history. And we must know this, that He is bringing the heat. We need not be surprised at what's coming. There's no off-speed pitch. He's not going to give you an intentional walk. He's bringing the heat. And it's coming right down the middle. You don't have to guess either. It's coming right over. It's coming straight. He's bringing the heat. Let's look at his voice. His voice was like the sound of many waters. It's like a multitude. It's like the multitude that is described in Daniel 10. It's the sound of many waters. I don't hear the Lord sometimes, we say. I can't hear Him. I don't hear the Lord. Well, the Lord speaks in places where we don't often pay attention. He speaks with a loud voice and He speaks in a multitude. And here we are gathered. We agree. We agreed in our confession of the Word made flesh. We agreed together. We had a multitude of voices saying one thing. The multitude of voices says, Jesus is Lord. That's the multitude of voices. The the church united declares that out loud and boldly, not only with just our words, but the way that we live. We sing the praises of our God and speak forth His Word boldly. In Psalm 8, Our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth, who have displayed Your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes You have established strength because of Your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider Your heavens and the work of Your fingers, the moon and the stars which You have ordained. Think about that. All of creation screams the glory of God. Everything you look at screams the glory of God. And we say, I don't hear Him. Look around. You'll hear Him screaming. Remember what Jesus said when He was coming uh, on, on, the, on the triumphal entry as He's coming in? And, and He's told to quiet the crowd, get them to stop talking. And Jesus says, if they don't, even the rocks are going to cry. Even the rocks will cry out my glory. Even the rocks speak of Him. So we can't say we can't hear Him. If we can't hear Him, it's because our ears are stopped up. If we don't hear Him, it's because sin is getting in the way of hearing the voice of God. And when Jesus comes to speak, when Jesus comes as the King, His voice will thunder through the whole of the earth. Even the rocks cry out the majesty of the King. All of creation speaks of Him. And all the voices have gathered together in the Son of Man, unveiled before our brother. Here, the the Apostle John, the one who is our brother and our partner in tribulation and in kingdom and in perseverance. Verse 16, In His right hand He held the seven stars, and out of His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and His face was like the sun shining in its full strength. This verse unveils to us the King's authority. In His right hand He holds the seven stars. And out of His mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, And his face is like the sun, shining in its strength. The unveiled master holds in his hand the host of heaven. He is the authority over the angels, and specifically the angels that are assigned to the people of God, the church. He bears the weight and the authority of the word of God. The word of his mouth pierces to the dividing of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. It cuts to the bone. It tears through the flesh. It discerns and reveals the thoughts and the intentions of the human heart. This is the Jesus that is coming soon. This is the Jesus that is being unveiled to us. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. 
our brother and our partner in tribulation and kingdom and perseverance that are in Jesus responds to the unveiled Christ in fear, in dread, painfully aware of his own unrighteousness, knowing that if he were to stand in his own merit, he would be dead. This is, this is who's being unveiled to us. This is the Jesus, as I said at the outset from Vadi Bakum's quote, this is the Jesus the church doesn't know very well. This is the Jesus the church doesn't know. This is the Jesus that isn't talked about. Jesus has talked a lot about his saving power, about his mercy and his love for us, which is great, and it's all true. Jesus as our representative, it's all true. And we should rejoice in that. The church also needs to know that He is King and Lord. And that the church belongs to Him. But what you'll hear in our modern church atmosphere is that the church belongs to us. Because it's all about us, right? It's all about whether or not you're pleased with what's going on in the church, whether they play the kind of music you like, whether they're polished, if they have all the right things and they have all the right programs, right? That's about you. And they don't want to know this Jesus. They don't want to know this Jesus, that it belongs to him. It doesn't belong to you. It is his church. You belong to him. Praise God that you do. You belong to him. But there's no doubt that this is his church. And so if you were face-to-face with this God, this Jesus, if you knew this Jesus, you would go, whoa, I'm a dead person before you. If I have to stand on my own merit, I'm dead. There's nothing I can do. I'm undone. We're like Isaiah. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. I'm dead before him. That's our posture. That's where we stand. And verse 7 of chapter 1 of Revelation tells us, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. See, when you think about Jesus coming in his glory, in his power, in his coming as a king, I hope that in your heart you go, I'm the one who pierced him. I did it. My sin did that to him. He's the king. My rebellion, my usurping of his authority, that's what did that. And then great woe should come upon your heart. See, there's a warning in here today. You will not want to meet the coming Christ without first receiving Him by faith as your representative. You will not want Him coming as King unless He is first your representative. If He comes as King and He's not your representative, you're in deep trouble. You're in deep, deep trouble. That's a warning. You won't want Him. You will want the one who absorbed the fire of heaven against your sin. You you don't want the one who's bringing the fire of judgment. You must first receive Him by faith, the one who was your representative, who was in the fire, who came out real shiny. See, if you rest on your own merit, there's only one thing to say. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Woe is me. But notice that John, feeling this woe, feels as though he's a dead man. Look at the grace and love of the Lord Jesus in the rest of verse 17. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. See, if you receive him first as, first as your representative, as your atoning savior, as the one who absorbed the fire, uh, when he comes as your Lord and master, he comes to bring you comfort. Like John, 
He will lay his hand upon you and he will lift you up. And he will remind you of his death in your place. He will comfort you that his sufferings have made you worthy in him. That's what he does here to John. Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Don't worry. I'm the one who has the keys to heaven, the keys to Hades, the keys to death. I have all of those things. I have made you worthy by faith. He will encourage you that death has no sting. Death has no victory. That he is the living Savior. He is the life-giving spirit in which you now walk. He reminds John that you need not fear hell. I hold the key. I am he who has loved you and set you free from your sins by my blood. He will remind you that it is his office and it is his authority. And we should be comforted in that. And then he tells him his will. Therefore, verse 19, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To his bondservant John, he gives the command. He tells his our brother and our partner in tribulation and kingdom to persevere in him, to carry out my divine will. See, he's telling him again that he is a vice regent, isn't he? Just like us. He's telling John, I'm the king and you are my vice regent representative here on earth. He says, write these things which you've seen and the things which are and the things which take place after this. Deliver them. Deliver this. Be a light on the lampstand. Stand up. Illuminate. Unveil the meaning of these things that were unveiled to you. Namely, the coming one, the ruler of heaven, the authority over the angels and the church. Further, reveal to your fellow bondservants that I, Jesus, am the head of the church. I am the light for the lampstand. He's the one who walks in the midst of the lampstands. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face, will you at this moment his grace receive? Will you? Will you at this moment receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you receive him as your representative, as the one who went through fire, as one who absorbed the heat? I want you to know that the Jesus who absorbed the heat is coming at the bottom of the ninth, and he's bringing the heat. If you want him as your master and king today, don't leave here without receiving him as your atoning sacrifice, as your representative. 